Book Two, Chapter Seven, Part One of The Octopus by Frank Norris. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. On their way to Derrick's ranch house, Hilma and Mrs. Derrick heard the sounds of distant firing. Stop! cried Hilma, laying her hand upon young Vaca's arm. Stop the horses! Listen! What was that? The carryall came to a halt, and from far away across the rustling wheat came the faint rattle of rifles and revolvers. Say, cried Baca, rolling his eyes. Oh, say, they're fighting over there. Mrs. Derrick put her hands over her face. Fighting, she cried. Oh, it's terrible. Magnus is there, and Harren. Where do you think it is? demanded Hilma. That's over toward Hooven's. I'm going back. Turn back. Drive to Hooven's. Quick. Better not, Mrs. Annixter, protested the young man. Mr. Annixter said we were to go to Derrick's. Better keep away from Hooven's if there's trouble there. We wouldn't get there till it's all over, anyhow. Yes, yes, let's go home, cried Mrs. Derrick. I'm afraid. Oh, oh, Elma, I'm afraid. Come with me to Hooven's, then. Oh, there, where they're fighting? Oh, I couldn't. I, I can't. I, I, I would... It would be all over before we got there, as Vaca says. Sure, repeated young Vaca. Drive to Hooven's, commanded Hilma. If you won't, I'll walk there. She threw off the lap roads, preparing to descend. And you, she exclaimed, turning to Mrs. Derrick. How can you, when Heron and your husband may be, may, are in danger? Grumbling, Vaca turned the carryall about and drove across the open fields till he reached the road to Guadalajara just below the mission. Hurry! cried Hilma. The horses started forward under the touch of the whip. The ranch houses of Quien Sabe came in sight. Do you want to stop at the house? inquired Vaca over his shoulder. No, no, go, go faster, make the horses run. They dashed through the houses of the home ranch. Oh, oh! cried Hilma suddenly. Look, look there, look what they have done. Vaca pulled the horses up, for the road in front of Annixter's house was blocked. A vast, confused heap of household effects was there. Chairs, sofas, pictures, fixtures, lamps. Hilma's little home had been gutted. Everything had been taken from it and ruthlessly flung out upon the road. Everything that she and her husband had bought during that wonderful week after their marriage. Here was the white enameled set of the bedroom furniture the three chairs, washstand, and bureau, the bureau drawers falling out, spilling their contents into the dust. There were the white wool rugs of the sitting-room, the flower-stand with its pots all broken, its flowers wilting, the cracked goldfish globe, the fishes already dead, the rocking-chair, the sewing-machine, the great round table of yellow oak, the lamp with its deep shade of crinkly red tissue-paper, the pretty tinted photographs that had hung on the wall the choir-boys with beautiful eyes, the pensive young girls in pink gowns, the pieces of wood-carving that represented quails and ducks, and, last of all, its curtains of crisp, clean muslin, cruelly torn and crushed, the bed, the wonderful canopied bed so brave and gay, of which Hilma had been so proud, thrust out there into the common road, torn from its place with the discreet intimacy of her bridal chamber, violated, profaned, flung out into the dust and garish sunshine for all men to stare at, a mockery and a shame. To Hilma it was as though something of herself, of her person, had been thus exposed and degraded, all that she held sacred, pilloried, gibbeted, and exhibited to the world's derision. 
Tears of anguish sprang to her eyes. A red flame of outraged modesty overspread her face. Oh, she cried, a sob catching her throat. Oh, how could they do it? But other fears intruded, other greater terrors impended. Go on, she cried to Baca. Go on, quickly. But Baca would go no further. He had seen what had escaped Hilma's attention. Two men, deputies, no doubt, on the porch of the ranch house. They held possession there, and the evidence of the presence of the enemy in this raid upon Quien Sabe had daunted him. "'No, sir,' he declared, getting out of the carry-all. "'I ain't going to take you anywhere where you're liable to get hurt. Beside, the road's blocked by all this stuff. You can't get the team by.' Hilma sprang from the carry-all. "'Come!' she said to Mrs. Derrick. The older woman, trembling, hesitating, faint with dread, obeyed, and Hilma, picking her way through and around the wreck of her home, set off by the trail toward the long trestle and Hooven's. When she arrived, she found the road in front of the German's house, and indeed all the surrounding yard, crowded with people. An overturned buggy lay on the side of the road in the distance, its horses in a tangle of harness, held by two or three men. She saw Carraher's buckboard under the live oak, and near it a second buggy which she recognized as belonging to a doctor in Guadalajara. Oh, 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 what has happened? Oh, what has happened? moaned Mrs. Derrick. Come, repeated Hilma. The young girl took her by the hand, and together they pushed their way through the crowd of men and women and entered the yard. The throng gave way before the two women, parting to right and left without a word. Presley! cried Mrs. Derrick, as she caught sight of him in the doorway of the house. "'Oh, Presley, what has happened? Is Harren safe? Is Magnus safe? Where are they?' "'Don't go in, Mrs. Derrick,' said Presley, coming forward. "'Don't go in.' "'Where is my husband?' demanded Hilma. Presley turned away and steadied himself against the jamb of the door. Hilma, leaving Mrs. Derrick, entered the house. The front room was full of men. She was dimly conscious of Cyrus Ruggles and S. Behrman, both deadly pale, talking earnestly and in whispers to Cutter and Phelps. There was a strange, acrid odor of an unfamiliar drug in the air. On the table before her was a satchel, surgical instruments, rolls of bandages, and a blue, oblong paper box full of cotton. But above the hushed noises of voices and footsteps one terrible sound made itself heard. The prolonged, rasping sound of breathing, half-choked, labored, agonized. "'Where is my husband?' she cried. She pushed the men aside. She saw Magnus, bareheaded, three or four men lying on the floor, one half-naked, his body swathed in white bandages, the doctor in shirt-sleeves on one knee beside a figure of a man stretched out beside him. Garnett turned a white face to her. "'Where is my husband?' The other did not reply, but stepped aside, and Hilma saw the dead body of her husband lying upon the bed. She did not cry out. She said no word. She went to the bed, and, sitting upon it, took Annixter's head in her lap, holding it gently between her hands. Thereafter she did not move, but sat holding her dead husband's head in her lap, looking vaguely about from face to face of those in the room, while, without a sob, without a cry, the great tears filled her wide-opened eyes and rolled slowly down upon her cheeks. On hearing that his wife was outside, Magnus came quickly forward. She threw herself into his arms. "'Tell me, tell me,' she cried. "'Is Harren, is—' 
"'We don't know yet,' he answered. "'Oh, Annie!' Then suddenly the governor checked himself. He, the indomitable, could not break down now. "'The doctor is with him,' he said. "'We are doing all we can. Try and be brave, Annie. There's always hope. This is a terrible day's work. God forgive us all.' She pressed forward, but he held her back. "'No, don't see him now. Go into the next room. Garnet, take care of her.' But she would not be denied. She pushed by Magnus, and, breaking through the group that surrounded her son, sank on her knees beside him, moaning in compassion and terror. Harran lay straight and rigid upon the floor, his head propped by a pillow, his coat that had been taken off spread over his chest. One leg of his trousers was soaked through and through with blood. His eyes were half-closed, and with the regularity of a machine the eyeballs twitched and twitched. His face was so white that it made his yellow hair look brown, while from his opened mouth there issued that loud and terrible sound of guttering, rasping, labored breathing that gagged and choked and gurgled with every inhalation. "'Oh, Harry, Harry!' called Mrs. Derrick, catching at one of his hands. The doctor shook his head. "'He is unconscious, Mrs. Derrick.' Where was it? Where, where is the, the, the... Through the lungs. Will he get well? Tell me the truth. I don't know, Mrs. Derrick. She had all but fainted, and the old rancher, Garnett, half carrying, half leading her, took her to the one adjoining room, Minna Hooven's bedchamber. Dazed, numbed with fear, she sat down on the edge of the bed, rocking herself back and forth, murmuring, Harry, oh, Harry, oh, my son, my little boy. In the outside room, Presley came and went, doing what he could to be of service, sick with horror, trembling from head to foot. The surviving members of both leaguers and deputies, the warring factions of the railroad and the people, mingled together now with no thought of hostility. Presley helped the doctor to cover Christian's body. S. Behrman and Ruggles held bowls of water while Osterman was attended to. The horror of that dreadful business had driven all other considerations from the mind. The sworn foes of the last hour had no thought of anything but to care for those whom in their fury they had shot down. The marshal, abandoning for that day the attempt to serve the writs, departed for San Francisco. The bodies had been brought in from the road where they fell. Annixter's corpse had been laid upon the bed, those of Dabney and Hooven, whose wounds had all been in the face and head, were covered with a tablecloth. Upon the floor places were made for the others. Cutter and Ruggles rode into Guadalajara to bring out the doctor there and to telephone to Bonneville for others. Osterman had not at any time since the shooting lost consciousness. He lay upon the floor of Hooven's house, bare to the waist, bandages of adhesive tape wreathed about his abdomen and shoulder. His eyes were half-closed. Presley, who looked after him, pending the arrival of a hack from Bonneville that was to take him home, knew that he was in agony. But this poser, this silly fellow, this cracker of jokes, whom no one had ever taken very seriously, had at last redeemed himself. When at length the doctor had arrived, he had, for the first time, opened his eyes. "'I can wait,' he said. "'Take Harran first. 
and when at length his turn had come, and while the sweat rolled from his forehead as the doctor began probing for the bullet, he had reached out his free arm and taken Presley's hand in his, gripping it harder and harder as the probe entered the wound. His breath came short through his nostrils, his face, the face of a comic actor, with its high cheekbones, bald forehead, and salient ears, grew paler and paler, his great slit of a mouth shut tight, but he uttered no groan. When the first anguish was over and he could find breath to speak, his first words had been, Were any of the others badly hurt? As Presley stood by the door of the house after bringing in a pail of water for the doctor, he was aware of a party of men who had struck off from the road on the other side of the irrigating ditch and were advancing cautiously into the field of wheat. He wondered what it meant, and Cutter, coming up at that moment, Presley asked him if he knew. "'It's Delaney,' said Cutter. "'It seems that when he was shot he crawled off into the wheat. They are looking for him there.' Presley had forgotten all about the buster, and had only a vague recollection of seeing him slide from his horse at the beginning of the fight. Anxious to know what had become of him, he hurried up and joined the party of searchers. "'We'd better look out,' said one of the young men. "'How will we go fooling around in here? If he's alive yet, he's just as liable as not to think we're after him and take a shot at us.' "'Oh, I, I guess there ain't much fight left in him,' another answered. "'Look at the wheat here.' "'Lord! He's bled like a stuck pig!' "'Here's his hat,' abruptly exclaimed the leader of the party. "'He can't be far off. Let's call him.' They called repeatedly without getting any answer. Then, proceeding cautiously, all at once the men in advance stopped so suddenly that those following caromed against them. There was an outburst of exclamation. "'Here he is! Good Lord, that's him, sure! Poor fella, poor fella!' The cowpuncher lay on his back, deep in the wheat his knees drawn up, his eyes wide open, his lips brown. Rigidly gripped in one hand was his empty revolver. The men, farmhands from the neighboring ranches, young fellows from Guadalajara, drew back in instinctive repulsion. One at length ventured near, peering down into the face. "'Is he dead?' inquired those in the rear. "'I, I don't know.' "'Well, put your hand on his heart.' "'No, I, I, I don't want to.' What are you afraid of? Well, I, I, just, I, I just don't want to touch him, that's all. It's, ba it's bad luck. You feel his heart. Well, you, you can't always tell by that. How can you tell, then? You, you fellas make me sick. Here, let me get there. I'll do it. There was a long pause as the other bent down and laid his hand on the cowpuncher's breast. Well? Uh, I can't tell. Sometimes I think I feel it beaten, sometimes I don't. I, I never saw a dead man before. Well, you can't tell by the heart. Oh, what's the good of talking so blame much? D dead or not, let's carry him back to the house. Two or three ran back to the road for planks from the broken bridge. When they returned with these, a litter was improvised, and throwing their coats over the body, the party carried it back to the road. The doctor was summoned and declared the cowpuncher to have been dead over half an hour. "'What did I tell you?' exclaimed one of the group. "'Well, I, I never said he wasn't dead,' protested the other. "'I only said you couldn't always tell by, by whether his heart beat or, 
or not. But all at once there was a commotion. The wagon containing Mrs. Hooven, Minna, and little Hilda drove up. Eh, Jen, my men, cried Mrs. Hooven, wildly interrogating the faces of the crowd. That has happened? Say, them those, those fellows, hey, hey, they hurt my men, not that? She sprang from the wagon, followed by Minna with Hilda in her arms. The crowd bore back as they advanced, staring at them in silence. Hey, what has happened? What has happened? wailed Mrs. Hooven as she hurried on, her two hands out before her, the fingers spread wide. Hooven, uh, hey, my men, are, are you all right? She burst into the house. Hooven's body had been removed to an adjoining room, the bedroom of the house, and to this room Mrs. Hooven, Minna still at her heels, proceeded, guided by an instinct born of the occasion. Those in the outside room, saying no word, made way for them. They entered, closing the door behind them, and through all the rest of that terrible day no sound nor sight of them was had by those who crowded into and about that house of death. Of all the main actors of the tragedy of the fight in the ditch, they remained the least noted, obtruded themselves the least upon the world's observation. They were, for the moment, forgotten. End of Book Two, Chapter Seven, Part One